all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hey, Shelby. Hey, Austin. You ready to talk about some Dragon Age? Yes, I'm ready to get into part two. Yes, so we're continuing our Countries of Thetis series. We are on the Free Marches part two. Um, And this is because we can't really give a general overview of all the Free Marches because each city is its own individual thing. You want to tell us just a little bit about that as a review, Shelby? Sure. So um, what we talked about in our last episode, and I'm just going to give like a little summary, but basically um, the free marches, they're all independent city-states, so they all have their own culture, ruling ruling leaders, that kind of stuff. They all have their own um, like systems of political governance. So they're all distinct. They do have some overarching like cultural things that unite them all, which is why they're all part of this one area we like to call the free marches. Um, the way they get this way is actually because of Andraste and Mafrath. Um, the son, their son, renounced his land and his lineage when he found out what his father did to, to his mother. Um, so because of that, so because of that, the cities never really coalesce into a full nation. Um, so they're all independent. They're all distinct. Um, and today we're going to get into some of the lesser known ones. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just get all started on this. Um, so let's go. I guess this is the second most known one, I would argue. But tell mm-hmm. me about Stark Haven. Yeah, I definitely think it's the second most known um, city in the Free Marches. And this is Stark Haven. So Starkhaven is always ruled by a prince. And we talked in our last episode about how no city-state in the Free Marches is ruled by a king or a queen. Well, that's why Starkhaven is ruled by a prince. And we'll get into it a little bit later, but there is a little bit of um, history around that and potential past conflicts. (laughs) But Starkhaven, as of now, is ruled by a prince. And currently, it's ruled by Prince Sebastian Vale. Now, Sebastian is a party member in Dragon Age 2. You don't have to recruit him. I think he's like a DLC party member, right? He is. Yeah, so you don't have to have him. Um, Most people don't like Sebastian, I think, because he's kind of like one-dimensional. But I think he gives a good balance to the party. We don't really have any, like, really faithful Andrastians in the party, except for, like, maybe Aveline, and I don't really think she ever talks about that. Um, So I do think that he is a good character, like, in the lineage of Liliana. Um, And then that continues with Cassandra. So I, I do think that he has a specific place in the party, but to go back a little bit, um, he's he's in the party in Dragon Age 2. And then after the events of Dragon Age 2, he goes home to rule um, Starkhaven. Spoiler alert, if you haven't done his DLC, 
Uh, but basically what happens is in Dragon Age 2, um, this family murders almost his entire family. And, and if you do his quest, you can go, you know, like take back Starkhaven from this family that, that murders his family. But then when you do that, he's then left to rule. Um, so that's what he's doing now after the events of Dragon Age Inquisition. So Starkhaven is the largest city in the Free Marches, even larger than Kirkwall. And they kind of go back and forth a little bit. Um, but it's the most wealthy city in the Free Marches. And it is very influential because it has very, very, very strong ties to the Chantry. Which we see with Sebastian. Yeah, exactly, which makes total sense. Like, I think he has a, a little dialogue that talks about how, like, the third sons of the Vale family always get sent to the Chantry. I mean, the guy wears a freaking belt buckle of Andraste for, that, <laughs> like, come on. That is my favorite, one of my favorite companion dialogues. With where Anders? Anders? Where Anders just straight up goes to Sebastian and goes, is that Andraste on your crotch? <laughs> yeah, and he basically yeah. says, like, how would the maker feel that you have his wife on your crotch? <laughs> it's and really Sebastian funny. is so offended. Which, like, I mean, Anders has a fair point. <laughs> right. Well, and it's like, you know, we both are in fairly religious circles, and sometimes... Religious people do the weirdest things, unintentionally dirty things. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so, um, early history. I normally always start out with the ancient history, but for Starkhaven, we really don't know the full historical background of Starkhaven's founding. But we can go back all the way to the Divine Age. In 195 Divine, the last battle of the Second Blight was fought, was fought at Starkhaven. Um, so this was an extremely destructive Blight, as they all are. And the Blight really occurs mainly in the western part of Thetis. Um, it begins in the Anderfells and stays mostly in that area. So it's interesting to me that it moves all the way to the eastern side in Starkhaven, but there's a lot of battles. There's even a siege of Weishaupt. Um, but for our purposes today, I want to focus on the last battle of this blight. And that battle is the Battle of Starkhaven. So in 195 Divine, like I said, the last battle is fought um, and it's led by the Wardens. They had initially planned a trap for the Archdemon Zazakel in Starkhaven. But somehow, apparently, the Archdemon found out about this trap. They don't really know how, but they find themselves completely surrounded by the Darkspawn and it is extremely bloody. Uh, both sides suffer super heavy losses, um, but finally Zazakel was slain by the Grey Warden, Corrin. And Corrin's lover and fellow warden, her name was Neria, she was a mage. She sacrificed herself, using her body as a shield to protect Corrin from a bolt from an emissary. 
And Corrin was then able to like cut through a bunch of dark spawn and plunge his sword into the archdemon, which ended the blight. Right. Woohoo, go Corrin. I know. And I really like this story and I know it's not totally like Starkhaven history since they're Grey Wardens, not Starkhaveners, but I like this story because it's kind of romantic in a weird, like violent way. Um, but it's not often that uh, couples in Dragon Age get like a happy ending. And this is not really a happy ending, but like for Grey Wardens, it's about as happy of an ending as you can get. Um, they obviously loved each other. They, um, you know, spent a significant amount of time together and they, they died defeating an archdemon. That's about the best way Grey Wardens can die. So I like this story because it, it is an example of like people that are in love. And yeah, usually our couples in, in Dragon Age kind of flame out. <laughs> do we, where do we learn that story? Is it just a codex? It is a codex, yeah. Um, so before I go into the fourth blight, which is the other blight that really affects Starkhaven, I want to talk about one thing that happens before that. So in the glory age in like 280-ish, a little bit before this, um, King Phyrus of Starkhaven, at this point he was a king. Um, they didn't have that kind of agreement that we don't let our rulers be kings or queens but king Phyrus launches Question. a yeah is he a male i don't think so okay i was just curious if that was there yeah was i don't i don't think so i don't think so but king Phyrus launches a series of military campaigns and what he's trying to do is unite the free marches under his own rule which to me that tracks for everything we know about Starkhaven thus far um, so he was backed in this effort by none other than Taventer. I wrote in my notes, parentheses, side eye. Well, um, there's just a lot of analogies. I know we aren't really hiding our own probably political views. You can probably hear that. We do try to like keep it pretty unbiased, but... There's a lot of parallel between Tevinter and America. I, yeah, and I, I had canoned that to you, and now you're, like, all in on it. <laughs> well, like, this is what we have done as American history. We have backed yeah. rebellions or military campaigns in other parts of the world because it suits our efforts. Interests, yeah, our political And whether interests. that's right, you can decide for yourself. Um, but there is that parallel there. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing that as Americans for yeah. literally since our founding. Mm -hmm. So anyway, back back to Dragon Age, back to Thetis. Sorry. Um, it's okay. So um, King Phyrus is supported in trying to unite the Free Marches by Tevinter, which, of course, it would be Tevinter. But as we talked about last week with Kirkwall, Tevinter has a vested interest in the free marches right like that's its center of the slave trade so of course they would want to like unite them all because then they could control it more easily it, ma well, it makes sense from a tactical perspective and really so to venture 
it has this weird relationship with Orle. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of enemies, but not necessarily enemies. But Tevinter and Ferelden, like, they want as much buffer between them and Ferelden as possible. Why? Because I think that there's tension that I think that because of Ferelden's ties to Andraste, I think there's still this fear that Ferelden will attempt to rebel against or move against um, Tevinter. And also the free marches in a little bit kind of act as also a buffer between Tevinter and Parvalin. Yeah, they definitely do. Uh, if I remember the map correctly. And so, like, those, Parvalin and Ferelden are the two main threats to Deventer right now. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. So, anyway, Deventer has, has its hands in everything. But back to King Phyrus, he very much failed in trying to unite the Free Marches, which is a testament to the strength of their character. Uh, because he doesn't even conquer one other Free March city. So in response, his so-called Deventer allies turn on him and they conquer Starkhaven. And they are able they are able to do that. So Deventer conquers Starkhaven and the Chantry declares an exalted march to liberate them in 280 glory. And so I think this is one of the reasons why Starkhaven has such strong ties to the Chantry now, even right. in the present present day. Definitely, definitely. Um. Okay, so let's talk about the Fourth Blight. So I feel like we talk about the Fourth Blight every episode, but it's important um, and it impacts like almost the whole planet. It starts in the uh, in 512 exalt, exalted. Um, so that's like the fi- the fifth century. So the blight, the fourth blight, first arises in Antiva, and I think we talked about this in our last or in two episodes ago when we talked about Antiva and Ravane. But the fourth blight began when the archdemon Andoral arises in 512 Exalted. And Darkspawn surface in two areas, both the northeast and the northwestern regions of Thetis. So they kind of overtake Hosberg. I think that's one of the first battles. That's all the way over in the Anderfels. Um, and in Antiva. So... They conquer Antiba City pretty early. Um, and then, of course, Ravain too, since it's just kind of a peninsula off of Antiba. But the Darkspawn, because they conquer Antiba and Ravain so quickly, the next place they go is the Free Marches, naturally. It's just where the geography is going to lead them. Um, so hundreds of refugees are outside of Antiba city that's going to impact the free marches because it's close as well um so this blight lasts for like 20 years there's fighting all over the place eventually the wardens regroup at the city of Wycombe which is not close to star it's kind of close to Starkhaven um but they regroup at Wycombe and the local citizens really devote 
all their efforts to fortifying the city. And the Grey Wardens knew that this would not be enough to hold off the Darkspawn. So they get really creative. Um, and they have a couple elves with them in their party. And the elf Isaya, who is the main character, one of the main characters of the book Last Flight, she, um, along with some other people, have this really great idea to use the elven concept of the Arabelle, the land ship, as they say, to try to transport people between these cities. Um, and so they build these makeshift Arabelles. It's a little bit different from the ones the elves use, um, but they build them to be carried and flown by the griffins. So they use these to evacuate pretty much the populace of most of the free marches, um, at least these couple of cities. Um, so Isaya is overseeing this. Her brother Garahel is like also on the field, uh, gathering nobles, doing all the things you have to do in the middle of a war. Um, Garahel is also joined in this effort by Amadis Vale, who is an ancestor um, of the modern-day Vale family. So they were not able to evacuate everyone in Wycombe um, before the city fell, but they sent a large number of, large percentage of the city to Starkhaven. So they do this um, not just in Wycombe, they also do it in Kirkwall and I think some other places throughout the Free Marches. And most of most of these people get sent to Starkhaven. So Starkhaven is kind of like the most, one of the most defensible places. Um, and we'll get into why a little bit later. So despite all of these successes, um, the year 521 is the worst part of this blight. The free marches are basically devastated at this time the Darkspawn continue to press inward into the Free Marches and they're just like tapped out. Um, and so it's at this point that Fortress Hain, at this point is it is known, not Chateau Hain, um, but Fortress Hain becomes a makeshift warden fortress. And it's a refuge known as the Retreat was dug into the mountain. And so that shelters people who are fleeing from Cumberland and Navarra and Kirkwall citizens. Kirkwall is continually being evacuated using the, the flying Aravels. Um, and so the wardens managed to evacuate hundreds of refugees to Fortress Hain from these other cities. Um, so during this time, they're still fighting the archdemon. They're still trying to, to kill the archdemon. Um, and it's not until... 524 when the archdemon is finally killed and he's finally defeated and Ral is finally defeated in Aisley but in 522 just to go back for a little bit um, a bunch of different armies finally came together so in 522 Garahel has gathered all these people from Orlay and the Anderfells and even wardens and dwarves and I think a few mages have all gathered and they're marching to Starkhaven to continue fighting this blight. Starkhaven is like kind of the front lines at this point. Um, 
so this battle is huge. Um, it's not the end of the end of the blight. Like I said, it would be two more years. Um, but at, at this point, the free marches is like the battleground. They're constantly fighting Darkspawn. Um, and then eventually the Archdemon is killed in Aisley, which is a city in like northern Antiva. So it's all in, in the, the second half of this blight is all in this free marches, um, eastern Thetis area. So even though the Archdemon is not killed in the free marches, this blight is devastating for the free marches and really to me it's a miracle that the land literally the land of the free marches was able to bounce back um and was able was not just like totally um disfigured by the taint like it, it's it's you're still able to grow crops you can't do that in the anderfells you can't do that in some places so to me that's really a big surprise um, but yes, the, the free marches is really devastated by this blight. Right, right. Whew. So would you say like the fourth and, and first blight are the most devastating? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're all horrible. Right, right. The course. fifth blight is definitely the least bad. Um... But yeah, I think the first and fourth are probably the worst. Right, definitely, definitely. All right. Anything else about Starkhaven we got going? Yes, I do have more about Starkhaven, but that's it for the Blights. So in, let me look here at my notes. In the Storm Age, in 756, the Kunari land against Ostwick. We talked about that in last episode, but... This they land near Ostwick and they begin launching assaults against Starkhaven and Kirkwall. Kirkwall falls to the Kunari, but Starkhaven does not. Which I'm sure they attribute to oh, the maker was with us. Yeah, probably. But anyway, so well, I just have a go ahead. Well, I just think it's interesting about like I didn't. I haven't really brought Sebastian to interactions with the Canari before because I never bring mm-hmm. Sebastian because he's why? like the worst rogue yeah. in that party. Well, yeah, um, but I don't even know why he's a rogue because, but it's because he's an archer. But anyway, um, there is this idea within the Chantry that the Canari are like anti-Chantry because they don't. Because they have the Qum, their own belief system. Um, well, I think there's also a belief that the Maker didn't create the Kunari. Well, there are also beliefs that the Maker didn't create the Elves either. Yeah, but I, that's that's more of that's not a mainstream thought. So I just think it's interesting. I'm sure that like there's a lot of like. In Kirkwall, there's tensions of the Cunari, but that's, I feel like that's mainly because, okay, what are you doing here? You guys have conquered us in the past. We also have this fear of outsiders. Yeah. But like, Starkhaven is more like, okay, you are the enemy of the Chantry. Right. Yes. I think it comes from different places. Definitely. 
But let's move into Starkhaven culture a little bit. Um, this will be my last, my last little point about Starkhaven. According to Varric, Starkhaven is pretentious. <laughs> um, most of the Starkhaveners that we've met so far, they do speak in a Scottish accent. Um, Sebastian, Professor Kenrick, I think there are a couple others too. But Varric um, is not totally off in his thought that Starkhaven is pretentious because, again, they're the wealthiest city in the Free Marches. Wealth and opulence and uh, money, just it runs throughout the city and throughout the culture of Starkhaven. The city itself is literally built to show off its city, its, its wealth. So the city sits on top of a curved mountain and it has rings of solid gray stone that surround the city, um, which earlier I said make it really defensible. It's a very defensible city, even more than Kirkwall, which Kirkwall is pretty defensible too. Um, but Starkhaven has these two rings um, of stone surrounding the city, and most of the buildings are built with marble and gold, while the royal palace is 100% built out of marble. So that just shows you how wealthy they are. And I think you even see that in Sebastian, like his armor, it it looks super fancy in the game mm -hmm. compared to everyone else's, at least. I mean, you get that. And like, in Hawk, like when Hawk acquires his fortune, he becomes pretty wealthy. Um, I mean, when Hawk to, acquires his fortune? Like Hawk's fortune in the deep roads oh okay yeah, yeah. yes like when I he gets his now. fortune and reestablishes his family you'd like to believe like that he's pretty wealthy i mean he has a nice estate there's obviously like i mean we know there's more to the estate than we get in there because we go into it um in act one through the basement mm -hmm. and everything so there is more to the estate than we see in act two uh um, true and, like, his position is, like, right outside the Chantry. It's right in the middle of... Or, no, it's right outside the Viscount estate. And so, it's, like, a good position. But, like, when I look at Sebastian, which is my point, he is so much more wealthy than Hawk. Whereas Hawk is, like, a, the Mells are, like, a high-up noble family in Kirkwall. Mm-hmm. But Sebastian's family is literally the ruler right. of the wealthiest city-state in the Free Marches. I always, Sebastian is a real life uh, help a Nigerian prince get his uh, throne back. <laughs> That's actually literally true. Like, yes. absolutely. Uh, except it's real. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, this is enough about Starkhaven. We're off topic. All right, let's go to our middle show and then we'll come back and get into our couple, last couple cities and then do um, our person. Sure, sounds great. All right. So, welcome to the middle of the show where we just tell you you can find us on uh, Twitter at Dragon Age Lorecast, or you can join the Robots Radio Discord and find us there at SheCup94 and Teacup92. Um, we do have a channel there that's devoted to the Dragon Age Lorecast. You can come on in there, share your playthroughs or any thoughts that you have. We love to engage with all of that. Um, the best way to support the podcast right now is to leave us a five-star review. Um, 
we don't have any reviews to read for this episode. So, you know, we just get in there and get, leave us a review and we'll leave you out. We'll read it out and give you a shout out and everything. All right. Well, let's get back into it, shall we? Okay. So we're going to talk about two more cities in the free marches. There are a couple more other than these two, but these are two of the major ones that we're going to focus on today. Okay. So first is Tantervale. And we've never been to this city, but it's mentioned a lot. And Tantervale is ruled by a lord or lady chancellor. And it's also ruled by the Chantry. And I'll get into that in a second. So Tantervale is located in the western free marches close to like Orlais and Navarra along the banks of the Menanter River. So Tantervale is really close to the city Hasmel, which um, we, I think we've talked about this already. That is where one of the missions in Dragon Age Inquisition happens. So it is in the northwestern part of the Free Marches. So Tantervale is one of the three influential cities in the Free Marches, which we've talked about the other two, Kirkwall and Starkhaven. But what I want to highlight about Tantervale is its relationship with the Chantry. And Tantervale has a very unique relationship with the Chantry because Chantry law is like absolute here. Um, Usually there's like, in most of our other cities and countries, it's like, yeah, we're Androstian and we respect the Chantry and we follow his teachings, but also they're kind of annoying and strict and there's this level of separation between the Chantry and the actual power. Not so in Tantervale. In Tantervale... It's a true theocracy, then. Almost, yeah. The Chantry is, is like, basically the rulers, and the city guard is, like, obsessed with enforcing Chantry law. Um, So, it's not a... It would not be a fun place to be. But I would, I, I think it would be really interesting to go there in a game. Not because it would be fun, but just because I would be really interested to see what they do with it. Um, so, that's Tantervale. Well, especially, like, how would you be able to play a mage in that game? Or right. That well, I mean, mage, I mean. It would be really interesting. It would be interesting, and there are mages who exist outside of the circle. Um, Wynne is a perfect example of that. Um, After the events of Dragon Age Origins, she goes and gallivants all over the place, and even in Origins, they allow her to leave and go with the hero. So there is um, a history, there is precedent of mages who don't necessarily only spend their life in the tower, in the circle tower, and that's it. Um... But you would have to obviously have special permission. So, yeah, it would be interesting how that plays out for sure. So, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum um, and move to Wycombe. So, Wycombe is ruled by a Duke or Duchess. It is a fishing town, actually. And Wycombe is located in the far east 
of the free marches. It's north of Hercynia, um, which we haven't talked about on here, but it's like almost in Antiva. It's on the sea. It's on the shore of the Waking Sea. Um, it's, it's kind of remote almost, but it, um, it is definitely its own thing. In contrast to Tantervale, Wycombe is known as the freest city in the Free Marches, and it's the revelry capital of Thetis, which is really saying something. Um, and this statistic is like my favorite statistic that I have ever found, ever. Wycombe imports the second most number of bottles of Antivan wine wow. in Thetis, just after the whole country of Orlais. Wow. To compare, just to compare for a minute. Wycombe has less than one-third the population, not of Orlais, but of Val Royale. That's a lot of wine. I know. It, it gives me, like, huge New Orleans, yeah. Bourbon Street kind of vibes. Sounds like your city. I know. I would love to go there. I say that about every place we talk about, though. Oh, no. You say you don't care to live in Orlais. Well, I, I, yeah, but, but, this is getting off topic, but I would love to go back to Val Royale and have it be an actual explorable city like Denerim was in Dragon Age right. Origins. Right, right. That's like one of my number one wants and wishes for Dragon Age. Yeah, that was kind of the thing that happened in Dragon Age Inquisition. Like the places, there was a lot more places, but they weren't as explorable. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to Wycombe for a minute. So they have a lot of fun. Um, we've talked about the fourth blight um, with the, the Aravels and the evacuation. That's a big thing. Uh, they definitely still remember that. In addition, um, King Merrick Farron was traveling to Wycombe, actually, when he was lost at sea um, and he disappeared. So he was going to Wycombe for peace talks between several different countries, I think. Um, so that's, that's another thing that kind of brings them into cultural significance. And then lastly, I think this is lastly about Wycombe, yeah. Lastly, the Lavellan clan has settled by the time of Inquisition. They've settled in an unclaimed valley not far away from Wycombe. Um, when they send a letter to the Inquisitor asking for help against heavily armed bandits. And they do this no matter what kind of Inquisitor you are. Obviously, it's going to be a little bit more meaningful if you're an elven Inquisitor from the Lavellan clan. Um, but they're asking for help against bandits, heavily armed bandits. And if the Inquisitor makes the right choices, they will discover that the bandits are actually mercenaries paid for by Duke Antoine of Wycombe. Even though the Duke outwardly claims to be an ally of the Inquisition, he is secretly allied with the Venatori. Helps them in their attempt to corrupt Wycombe's human population by poisoning all of the wells with red lyrium. So, humans are getting sick and the elves are not. Humans obviously start to blame the elves unjustly, but it makes sense. The elves aren't getting sick. Um, 
Wycombe's nobility eventually turns their soldiers against both the Dalish and city elves in an attempt to wipe them out from the city. So if the Inquisitor makes the right choices, Clan Lavellan can survive the ordeal. Um, you can reveal this plot that he that the Duke is allied with the Venatori. And if that happens, then um, the Keeper of the Clan, Keeper Istamathorial, will become part of the new Wycombe City Council that's set up to replace Duke Antoine. But if the Inquisitor makes the wrong choices, Clan Lavellan is wiped out. The Inquisition's forces are forced to retreat from Wycombe and they don't discover the Venatori. Very bad. But what I think is really interesting um, about Wycombe is this part about the city council. If, if you do discover the plot and everything, they're replaced, their ruler is replaced with a city council. And the keeper gets a seat on that council. I think that's really progressive for Thetis. And I definitely applaud them for that. I think right. that's a good move. I mean, what Dalish clan can say that they have a, like seat at the political table with the human city that they're near well the clan Lavellan. yeah but like other than that like the inquisition clan no or the, no not really and you know marathari's clan no zathrian's clan absolutely not um, right and those are the ones that we meet and see yeah well that's all i have about wycombe um, right. And that was the last city. So if you don't have anything else to add, we can move on to our character. Well, I do want to add just a couple from our list from last time. A couple I left mm -hmm. out that were not from Kirkwall. Um, oh, sure, sure. I forgot. So Tom Rainier is from the Free Marches because he obviously competes in the Grand Tourney. Uh, yep. Vivian DeFair, I believe, is from... She's not... She's from Ostwick, right? I don't remember. I don't think she gives us a city. Oh, but she is from, even though she sometimes considers herself Orlesian, she is from the Free Marches. Um, culturally, she is. Culturally, yeah. yeah. And um, Professor Bram Kendrick, which is a good transition. And Sebastian Vale, obviously. But yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about Professor Kendrick, who is our character? Yeah, so um, Professor Kenrick is a side character that we meet in the Jaws of Hacken DLC in Dragon Age Inquisition. And he's a professor at the University of Orlais. He's a human researcher, and we can find him at the Basin Floor Camp at the beginning of that DLC. He's like one of the first characters we meet. Um, so a little bit about him, Bram, Bram Kenrick is the fourth son of Lord and Lady Kenrick of Starkhaven. He was originally going to be sent to the Chantry, uh, which is kind of what the Vales do as well. So this may be like a pattern of things that Starkhaveners do. They send their, uh, not their first or second sons, but their third and fourth sons to the Chantry. Right. Um, but he doesn't go to the Chantry. Instead, he convinces his family that the University of Orlais would be a fashionable alternative that fits with his interests, too. So, 
Kenrick's studies focus on the early Chantry period, specifically the time of the first Inquisition. And this is one thing that I really respect about Professor Kenrick. Most historians and scholars of Thetis have taken the history of the first Inquisition and Inquisitor Ameriden as settled and known and established. But Kenrick did not. He wanted answers to a lot of these questions that still persisted about the first Inquisition. And he was really looked down upon for his research and for his interests, at least until the Inquisition and Josephine started to take him seriously. Mm -hmm. And that's where we start in the game with Professor Kenrick. I really love that because it's a look into sadist, like, there are people within, like, outside of the elves to Venter and Parvalin who question the history that is presented by the Chantry. Um, and really, Kenrick is the first historian, not the first, but, like, one of the main, one of the first, like, people who's, like, a historian that we meet in the games. Um, there is a Chantry sister that you can give, like, artifacts to in Dragon Age Origins and Denerim. Um, but other than that, but think... she's not she's not even a historian. She's just like um, she's like a buyer for a museum or like right. like an archivist. Like she's right. not really an uh, an academic. The only other person I feel like is comparable to Professor Kenrick is Brother Genetivi. Yes, Brother Genetivi would be a good one. But I love that because it, and I love Bioware's take to like make like i feel like bioware really did their research on like what the practice of like you know as you know is called historiography of what they do mm -hmm. and i think he's really accurate to that which i appreciate in their i game. agree yeah i minored in history in college and i think he's very accurate um mm -hmm. to academia but right. we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about his assistant so as the player, you help Kenrick find the rest of Ameriden's story as well as his final resting place. So after the Inquisitor has dealt with Hacken, who is the namesake of the DLC, um, you can return to Kenrick and tell him of your discoveries. He is shocked to learn that Ameriden was not dead. He was being kept alive through magical prowess inside the fortress. Um, and Kenrick is even more shocked once he realizes that Ameriden was a mage. And the Inquisitor can also hide the fact that Ameriden was an elf, or the Inquisitor can tell Kenrick. So if you tell him, he says, quote, he'll either be famous or beheaded. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty accurate, too. I, I think that's accurate. That's what would happen. Um... But I wanted to talk about his research assistant. Um, Colette is her name. She is certain that Kenrick will properly credit her once their work is, is published, their research is published, um, unlike many others at the University of Orlais. So Colette is an elf. Um, elves are admitted to the University of Orlais, but they're definitely still in like... A disadvantaged position um, in the university. They are not published. I don't think an elf has ever been published um, officially in like an academic journal or whatever their equivalent is. Um, 
And if you've been to grad school or like if you've done a PhD, you probably know that like if you're a research assistant to a professor, your likelihood of getting published or credited or at least mentioned in whatever research they're working on is pretty high. Um, it, especially if, you know, you're like the only research assistant, like they depend on you a lot to help them in that research. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get some kind of credit. So the fact that these elves who are research assistants to these professors at the University of Orlais, the fact that they haven't been getting credit, credit um, for all this stuff is really unjust and unfair, in my opinion. So I really respect Kenrick for this. Research, one of the big thing research assistants do, I know this is a little off topic, but they are normally the ones who check sources. So they check mm -hmm. for either people competing with your argument or supporting your argument so that you can be aware of them. Or if you have said something that someone else has said, you can credit them properly, which as you and I know, if you plagiarize in that way in a research like that it's a big deal it could yeah, shut down your deal. entire thesis or research project mm -hmm. or everything um and so they are essential to the research process yeah so i think it's a really big deal that kenrick even has an elven research assistant um, so I really like him and respect him a lot for, for all of that. But regardless of what you do with a merit and whether or not you tell him, um, Kenrick will profusely thank the Inquisitor for helping him with his research. He's very, very appreciative. Um, and another thing about Kenrick, this is just a couple of fun facts. He has a pet fish that he likes to talk to, which I think is very cute. And Professor Kenrick uses the following mnemonic device to remember the gods of the elven pantheon. Every mother finds Druffalo among sleeping juniper groves. This mnemonic device does not account for Fenharel. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Elgrenon. Yep. Mythal. Fallodin. Mm -hmm. Durthamin. Mm hmm. Uh, Andriel. Mm hmm. Siles. Yes. June. Mm hmm. And then Gillahan. Gillanon. Gillanon. Sorry. Close enough. I'll accept it. <laughs> Yay. Um, yeah, so I think that's funny. I could have used that mnemonic device like. In our ago. first episode, two episodes, yeah. when we were talking about the yeah. Elven Gods. But anyway. Which, it makes sense it doesn't include Fen Harrell because Fen Harrell is not an Evanaris. Evanaris. Well, but he also is. Like, he right. he's counted among the Evanaris and the Forgotten Ones. So, yes and no. Right. Um, but the last thing I want to talk about with Kenrick is that there are Codex entries um, and notes that you can pick up at his camp where he's like basically writing down all of his thoughts. And he also has some notes that he has exchanged with Scout Harding and they're flirting a little bit. And I think Aww, it's really cute. That is cute. Um, so I like them. I, I would ship them. At least I, if, if we can't fully romance Scout Harding, then I want her to be with Professor Kenrick. Well, Kenrick, lover of all races. 
Yeah, for sure. He is like, which I think is really significant. Like it, he very easily could have been this prejudiced, pretentious jerk from Starkhaven. Like he comes from a noble family. He's wealthy. He's from Starkhaven. He's super tied to the Chantry. His research is about the Chantry. So he very easily could have been just like prejudiced against everyone that wasn't just a human male. Um, but he's not. That's not who he is. And I respect right. that. Yeah, definitely. So that's all I've got about our uh, Free Marches episode part two, unless you have anything else you want to add. Nope, not at the moment. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at dalorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time. Hello, Vault Dwellers. Join me, Jax's sassy lady Romer, Eric, and the creator, Maverick, as we take topics from the Fallout universe and discuss them with other diverse individuals. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow us on YouTube. You can also find us on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it using at FalloutRTD. You can send us an email using FalloutRTD at gmail.com. Join us. The conversation has already started.